All right, so, so Genesis chapter 4, there are these two brothers. You've probably heard of this story before. Their names are Cain and Abel, and they are bringing offerings before the Lord, and in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So imagine you're Cain at this point. You are experiencing this moment where you have brought the best of, or at least what you think is the best of, what you have to offer to God. And you come before God and your brother brings an offering and God says his is right. His is better. You both feel like you're bringing your best, but God approves Abel's and not Cain's. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So, Cain was very angry. Cain was very angry. Something had been violated inside of Cain in this moment. Now we know Genesis chapter 4 fits really neatly after Genesis chapter 3. When the fall of man happens, man falls into sin, man disobeys God. God says now the whole system that I've kind of built is now infected with sin. Now you're introducing death into uh, the reality of human existence, God told them that this is what would happen, and right after God introduces death and says, death is now what you will have to deal with, death not only becomes a punishment in this situation, but we're going to see that death actually becomes something else. Why are you angry? This is what the Lord said to Cain. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted, right? The Lord is talking to Cain and he's saying, hey, you could have done better. You would have been accepted. And if you do not do well, well, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. The same thing that made your parents fall, the same thing that made them disobey me, the same thing that introduced death into creation, Cain, it is waiting for you. Its desire is contrary to you. Contrary to you. The the word's kind of confusing. Its desire, it's like an animal waiting for you to walk out the door so that it can consume you. The Lord is looking at the anger inside of Cain's heart and he's saying, Cain, look out. Because right now this thing is standing and it will consume you. But you must rule over it. So this is is the preface to the story that actually happens. Where, uh, if you know the rest of the story, Cain and Abel go out to their field and Cain thinks no one is watching and while nobody is watching in his mind, he murders his brother so that death not only becomes a punishment that comes upon creation for breaking away from God, death now becomes something that human beings begin inflicting on one another. 
And it all starts at the root of what is crouching and waiting. As Cain feels offended that Abel did better than him. As Cain feels like something about his identity is in jeopardy because Abel was accepted and Cain was not. And God really simplified it. He said, hey, if you do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't do well, then you won't be accepted. Like, this is how simple it is, Cain. So, you know, maybe like next time you could do better. But, but Cain let the anger well up in his heart and what happened? And sin pounced upon him and caused him to murder his brother. This morning, we're in Exodus chapter 20. We're in the sixth commandment, the commandment that focuses on not murdering. And what's really interesting is is that this, this command gets reiterated quite often before we ever see it show up in the Ten Commandments. We see it come up again and again. Violation of this command is almost like the prime example that humanity is truly broken from God's original intention. Because humans are rising up against humans. Humans are killing humans. And so this morning we're going to see something about God's heart behind this command to not murder. But Instead of having to like wait to discover how that heart formulates later on, we already see his heart playing out at the beginning of the story. Before the Ten Commandments, the, the, the Pentateuch written by Moses, it's this comprehensive story of God's works and what he is trying to accomplish and his law for his people. Before his people ever get to the command, no murder, they read this story about Cain and Abel. And they read in that story, this execution that took place that started with anger in Cain's heart. So we're going through this series on the Ten Commandments, and uh, just as a bit of a refresher for us, I want to ask the question again, why are we studying the Ten Commandments? And so I'm just going to throw these up here. I don't want us to forget what we're trying to accomplish, what uh, you know, I'm praying for that we are together expecting the Lord is going to help us do as we go through these things. So number one, I hope that the Lord is going to undo some cultural misconceptions about himself and what he values. I hope that he'll change some things about what we understand, even if we've been Christians for a long time. that his word will start to undo things that we've misunderstood about him. Number two, I hope that he will well up inside of us gratitude and worship because this morning after Pastor Don read read the, the Ten Commandments to us, if you were like me and you were listening to that and you were recognizing, gosh, I've fallen desperately short of what God expects. And then we sing the song, uh, Sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measure, that He would send His only Son to make one who had fallen so desperately short as I have His treasure. Right? That it would well up inside of us gratitude and gratefulness and worship for what Jesus has accomplished for us. Number three, that we would gain motivation and training to connect because the Ten Commandments actually give us language and understanding that would enable us to walk to our neighbors and recognize our neighbors in their place where they have fallen short of God and what he values and give us language to have a conversation with them about that. To actually say, like, this is, this is God. This is what he loves. Can you honestly tell me that you've met all of these standards? 
right? And then we get the, the opportunity to then, in the midst of that, present the good news of Jesus, connect Jesus to them, that Jesus pays the penalty for our sin and actually equips us to begin living in line with God and what he values so that we would gain motivation and training to connect. And number four, that we would gain cooperation. We would increase our cooperation with the Holy Spirit as we see God and his values that he would actually bring us more and more into alignment with the kind of people that he desires us to be. So uh, we are in what is called in the Ten Commandments the second table of the law. Uh, So in the law we see two overarching foundational desires for God's people that we would love God first and foremost and that out of our love for God would become a would come a love for other people a way that we engage in society that these two things entwine together uh, articulate what is the core commands of the law um, so that these two things love of God and love of neighbor would be what grounds a rightly ordered society. So last week, uh, we looked at number five, the first commandment in the series of commands about loving our neighbors well, operating in society well. And we talked about how the foundation of being able to live in society well, of being able to build a functioning society Yes, number, first and foremost, it starts with love of God, right? The first four commandments. But then the first commandment in society is honor your mother and your father. Right? It's about honoring parents. And there's this idea of the honor that we gain in the home that, that as parents form and shape children, that those children would then get sent out into the world and know what it means to honor right? An honorable home, a home where parents are honored, will create kids who uh, will honor in society and will carry out the idea of honor in society. So what is this idea of honor? Well, last week we defined it as this. Honor is offering actions and intentions that recognize someone's God-given weight, right? This is the idea. So God placed parents in your home, and because God has placed them there, because he has put them in the position that he has put them in, in his family, and because he has the, in your family, and because he has the authority to do it, he has given them a special place, and he calls you to honor them, to recognize the weight that he has given them in your life. So when parents are honored in a home, where the Lord is the foundation, the kids from that home carry that honor with them out into society. So what is the most basic object then of honor in society? Like if I am walking out of the home and now I'm going out into the social sphere, what is the most basic object of honor that would exist on this horizontal plane? It's the human person the human life. So normally what I will do um, when I preach is you will see me talk up here for uh, a fair length of time. And uh, in the midst of my talking, I will build up to a point. And I will say, church, the main point this morning is this. Uh, So today, instead of talking a fair length of time and giving you the main point, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it to you right at the outset because we're going to keep coming back to it and coming back to it and coming back to it. So church, the main point this morning is this. The call of God on us today is this. Honor, 
life like God does. Honor life like God does. So Exodus 20, 13. It says, you shall not murder. Uh, If you read this in Hebrew, so that's four words. Our verse today is actually in Hebrew, a total of two words. No murder. No murder. So uh, let's talk about the reality of a broken world for a second. Where we live, like we, we, we heard the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel is, uh, it's, was something new at that point, but it was unfortunately a trajectory that was set inside of human relationships. So, so violence against human life has been around since the beginning. Like it's nothing new. So we, you know, we live in the United States. We live very comfortable lives. The more comfortable lives we live, we tend to insulate ourselves from this reality. Uh, We tend to like to pretend that we are very safe, that our world is very safe, but uh, the reality is, is that violence against human life continues on no matter how much we attempt to insulate ourselves from it. In fact, let's talk about some things that happen 35 miles down the road from us in the city of Chicago. In the city of Chicago in 2020, there were, now we know 2020 was a hard year, right? But let's talk about violence in hu- against human life in the city of Chicago. There were, in the city of Chicago, 1,600 opioid overdoses this year, or sorry, in 2020. And there are potentially, they're still counting them and still investigating and still trying to find out. There are potentially another 500 on top of that. So we're talking potentially now 2,100 opioid overdoses in the city of Chicago in 2020. In 2020, there were 786 murders in the city of Chicago, which you're like, well, how do I quantify that? Well, number one, those 786 murders, uh, most of them, the majority of them occurred within about a five-mile radius in Chicago. And that number, 786, so uh, since the year 2000, murder was on the decline in Chicago. It kept going down and kept going down and kept going down. In 2019, the number was something like 400. And in 2020, it skyrocketed back up to 786 with one particular weekend in Chicago in a 24-hour period, there were 18 people who were murdered on one day. On one day. Okay, so that's, that's 35 miles down the road from us. That's fairly close to home. Let's talk about uh, what is happening nationally in terms of violence against human life. There is a current social movement that exists to not just allow the ability to end life in the womb, but to celebrate it, to make it something that is celebrated and accepted. Let's talk about uh, violence against human life historically. Historically, since 2013, seven U.S. states have passed death with dignity legislation, which gives and celebrates the ability of a person to make a decision about ending their life, about making an active move to end their own life internationally. The disruption of COVID-19 has given many governments an opportunity to take advantage of the situation 
and begins systematic persecution of religious minorities, cultural minorities, ethnic minorities in their country. And you read about this stuff. This stuff is happening in the news quite frequently. It keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back. So here's the reality. No matter how much we attempt to insulate ourselves from it, we, the moment we are born into this world, are born into a culture of death. We are born into a culture where human beings in attempting to celebrate their own rights and attempting to get what they think they deserve will have no problem ending the life of another human being. Like We cannot look at the reality of those statistics, and even if you don't agree with me about uh, the moral significance of all of the statistics, even if you don't agree with me about that, you could still look at the overall breadth of them and together with me, say one thing, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There's no reality, there's no uh, situation where you could look at any of these statistics and go, oh, that's a good thing. You know that this is broken. There's something about this that's, that's broken, and thank God, he agrees with us. The Ten Commandments reveal to us something about God's vision for humanity. And within God's vision for humanity, human life is incredibly weighty. It holds a significant weight. So God gives this command, no murder. So let's talk about this command and what it is and is not saying. Uh, Murder is the Hebrew word ratzak. So uh, there are seven words in the Hebrew Bible that refer to the taking of life. This particular word occurs 47 times in the Hebrew Bible. And of all the words, this one most often refers to intentional murder, the intentional taking of life, the, the decision to, to, to take somebody else's life, uh, violence against self or against others. So for what it's worth, there are other words in the Hebrew Bible for other kinds of killing. There's a word for the killing of animals. There's a word uh, for killing for self-defense. There's a word for accidental killings. Uh, There is a word for execution of murderers by the state. There is a word for killing that happens during war. All of these different words are used, which means that this word, when this word comes up in this command, it is not a categorical ban on all ending of life. That's not actually what it's talking about in this particular command. No, there are arguments to be made about those other kinds of killing that might occur, right? But you don't base any of those arguments in this command, right? Because this command is about a specific kind of killing that is taking place. So here's what it is banning. It is banning intentional violence. Let's, we'll just talk through a few different things that it's being. So number one, intentional violence against human life. The decision to take another human life by an individual. It is dealing with self-murder, suicide. It is dealing with being an accessory to murder. So it's not just murdering, but it, the word is used in 2 Samuel twelve nineteen. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in the sight? Uh, the prophet is coming and talking to David 
when uh, he had Uriah the Hittite killed. David himself did not kill Uriah the Hittite. He did not take his life. He arranged for it to happen. And the prophet says to David, you have Ratzak, Uriah the Hittite. You have killed him with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So, uh, there is this reality that David actually, like, as in God's eyes, David committed murder against Uriah the Hittite. So that's, uh, you can be an accessory to murder. You can uh, violate this command by not punishing murderers when God has given you the authority to punish murderers. So King Ahab, he wants the vineyard of this guy named Naboth. And so he tells Jezebel, that he really, really wants this vineyard of Naboth's. And so Ahab, well, okay, so Jezebel, this is what she does. She like knows that he really, really wants this. And so she makes up a lie about Naboth that got him stoned. Like this lie that she makes up, now uh, all of the people in the, the town go and they decide to stone Naboth and Ahab could now go and take the vineyard, right? Now Ahab did not murder Naboth. He did not actually kill Naboth. Jezebel arranged for it. The people, <coughs> the people in the town stoned him, but Ahab goes in and takes the vineyard. He had nothing to do with the actual murder or the arrangement of it, but in 1 Kings 21, 18 and 19, the prophet Elijah comes to Ahab and he says, uh, the Lord says to Elijah, arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? So Naboth didn't do anything, but you know what he didn't do? He didn't at all carry out any sort of punishment against Jezebel when he found out that she had him murdered. Right? And so the Lord is holding Naboth, or sorry, Ahab responsible for the murder of Naboth. That is something interesting that we see. So there are all of these like categories of ways that people can actually violate this command. So if that's true, if not punishing murderers when God has given you the authority, could actually violate this command. So let's come up with a, a kind of definition. Murder is the word ratzak, and we'll call it this, to intentionally endorse or carry out the unauthorized killing of a human. That word unauthorized is very important because what are we recognizing? We're recognizing that an authority, namely God, has deemed that in some cases it's actually necessary to end human life, right? And we might say, well, who is God to deem that and all of that? What we know is that as we read scripture, God has deemed it necessary in some cases to end human life and authorizes certain people or certain bodies to be able to do that. He places boundaries around it. But when we make a decision that we are gonna go outside of those boundaries, that we are gonna ignore the boundaries that he creates, that is when we violate this commandment. That is what is forbidden, to decide for yourself who should live or die. 
to hold that decision in your own hand is what the command is taking off the table. Okay, so we understand the word, we understand the command, we're trying to wrap our minds around what God is saying and doing with this, so why? Why is this so important? It should be pretty easy to figure out from a social perspective, because if everybody can kill everybody, then you don't have much of a society, right? Like that, I get that, but let's get behind it. Let's see what's going on in God's heart. So to figure this out, we're going to actually consider an example of God establishing authorized killing. In Genesis 9, 5, and 6, Noah has just come through the flood, and God is making a covenant with Noah about how he will no longer flood the earth. That will not be the way that he punishes man from here on out. So he makes this covenant, but then he sets up some structure for the society that's going to come after Noah. So Genesis 9, 5, and 6, it says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So this is what God is recognizing in creation. Because of sin, there is so much disorder that he must now speak into this disorder and say that the murderer needs to be killed for his murder. That's kind of what he is establishing here. So notice, it's not just beasts, or sorry, it's not just people who murder, it's beasts, right? It's, it's carrying it out to that extent. So the whole point is violence against human life cannot go unchecked. We can't just be unaccountable for how we handle these things. So verse 6 says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is kind of like a social mandate to those who operate and lead cities and towns in this new society that is forming. God is making sure that Noah, like Noah, listen to this, make sure you know this so that it can be passed on to your descendants who are going to set up these cities and towns. Why? For God made man in his own image. Here's the heart behind the value. The core reason that God takes issue with murder. Like, God made human beings in his own image. There is nothing else in all of creation that we could speak about that with those words. Like, what this means is that there is a special weight that God has assigned to humanity. There's a special amount of honor that God gives to humanity. There's a special amount of dignity that God has created humanity with. And that weight never disappears. No matter matter what you might do, no matter who you might wrong, no matter... um, The amount of things that might go wrong with your body or with your mind, the weight of the reality that you are made in the image of God, that any person is made in the image of God, it never disappears. Nothing takes that weight away. 
God, he never removes this designation from humanity. He never stops recognizing the intrinsic value of a human life. So in Psalm 8, 4, and 5, this is what it says. It says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Like, this doesn't make sense that God would pay special care and attention to us and the Son of Man that you care for him. Like, this doesn't seem to make sense because sometimes we are pretty awful human beings and yet God is still mindful of us. God still would pursue us with some kind of covenant love. Yet, verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, which is actually very, very high and crowned him with glory and honor. He's not saying this about people who have gotten their religion right. He's not saying this about people who are in God's favored nation. He is saying this about all human beings. You have crowned them with glory and honor. So let's go back and consider Israel. So, uh, so we've been talking a lot about the idea of murder and all of these concepts. Uh, this command is being delivered at a certain point in time. Israel is sitting at the foot of the mountain. They're listening to God talk to Moses and kind of give these commands. So think about the Israelite who is sitting here at the mountain and he's, they're hearing these things read off and there's a reality for this Israelite. It's like you think about establishing a society, like God forming a special nation of his own, and it's actually like really, it's kind of no surprise that there would be a command about not murdering. Like you want a society to function that seems pretty basic to what, what would be included. But for God, this command is not primarily about societal function. Like it's really, really helpful for societal function, but it is not primarily about societal function. It's about the intrinsic value and worth and weight of every single human being, regardless of how they function. It's, if it's, so if it's, if it's purely about societal function, that, then what that means is that whenever you might become functionless, or whenever society actually has to decrease its function to continue either preserving your life or just like making sure that you have a place to live. Like if society has to decrease its function, it's actually worth that because God has crowned you with a high level of dignity and honor regardless of how you function. So Israel would learn from this that the poor and the sojourner who comes through their country and through their fields, regardless of the fact that they're not an Israelite, and regardless of the fact that all these people do when they come through countries is take. They, they take resources. They take things that don't belong to them. Regardless of that fact, you know what Israel was going to have to do? Leave some of your crop so that when they come through, they have something to take. Uh, this would mean that the child in the womb has incredible weight, that God places incredible value on the child in the womb, and it comes just a few verses after this verse, for what it's worth. 
So let's carry that thought a little further in today. What does that mean for us today? Like if that's what it would have meant for Israel, Israel is discovering the weight of a human life in all of these different scenarios. For us today, what does that mean? Well, it means that a person with a debilitating mental illness, no matter the amount of resources that might be consumed on continuing that person's life, right? They you might look at them and say they don't contribute anything to society, which, by the way, is what the Nazis did. They discovered that these, there are certain people who don't contribute anything to our utopia that we're trying to build, and so we are justified in ending them. Right? But, but a person with debilitating mental illness, you know what God has said? They are crowned with glory and honor. I have made them in my image. You know what, a person who is terminally ill, whether you know, you've been given a, a timeline of six months, whether you've been given a timeline of one week, up until the moment that your life ends, and even after that moment, do you know what God says? I have crowned that life, that person, with dignity and honor. And because of that, that kind of puts boundaries around what we can and cannot do with that life. A child who comes along, we, we find out about this child and, um, and becomes kind of like an interruption to all the hopes and dreams that you might have had. Right? And, and in a society that is really big, on building personal autonomy and, and hopes and dreams and making sure that we have all the rights we have to be able to pursue those things. A child can become an awful inconvenience, but you know what God says? I have crowned that child with dignity and honor. They are made in my image. Maybe yourself, maybe you would be consumed with self-hatred and self self-loathing, and those are things, those are hard things to, to, to kind of dig through, and you might even be tempted to end your own life because you feel worthless, and do you know what God says about your life? I have crowned you with dignity and honor. You are made in my image. Church, God has placed life, human life, in incredibly high esteem. And we, as the people of God, the people who are supposed to be conformed into Christ's image more and more, the people who learn what it looks like to reflect God's values in society, we need to be the first to recognize the honor that he has given it. So what does it look like to live out God's heart on this manner? Uh, So turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we are going to spend the rest of our time here. So Jesus, he is addressing people who have learned that as long as you don't murder, you have fulfilled the sixth commandment. Like as long as you don't take anybody else's life, you are golden, you are good, you are sailing on through this life. And so what we discover is that, uh, and Jesus is showing them, is that actually, you may have kind of checked a box 
you may have done the minimum of what this requires, but what, you, what you've actually done is you failed to see God's heart behind this command. So uh, Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, he says, You have heard, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So uh, take liable to judgment and liable to judgment. After, at the end of verse 22, it says liable to judgment. In verse 21, it said whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It is an equating of punishments. So, so that the, uh, the person who murders is equated in punishment with the person who is angry. But Jesus does something really interesting here because he keeps intensifying. He keeps upping the ante. So, so who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. For what it's worth, the council is a step higher than just judgment, right? Like you are, you're getting kind of kicked up the chain. You're getting escalated to the second level, right? Because uh, we can't deal with this in kind of a one-on-one situation. So you're going you're gonna to go to the council when you insult your brother, right? So you've just not murdered. Great. You're not liable to judgment. But, but if you're angry, you'll be liable to judgment. You're going to go up another level if you insult your brother. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You fool for what it's worth, is not just an insult, but it is saying to the person, it's actually kind of executing judgment on the person yourself. In essence, the word, you fool, is to call somebody worthless. So whoever says that will be liable to the hell of fire. So now it's not only the counsel that you're accountable to, it's God and his wrath himself that you're accountable to. Right, that's, that's the, the story that Jesus is telling here. His point is that the person who follows kind of through this progression, in their heart, what have they done? They've ceased to recognize the dignity that God has given to the person who is the object of their anger and their insults and their label of worthlessness. He has ceased, the person who is in this position, who has gone through this progression, has ceased pursuing God's heart behind the sixth command. And so um, we're going to look at this reality. And, and Jesus' goal is not to say that you're liable for more if you say you fool than you are if you murder them, right? So, well, just go ahead and murder them because it's a lower punishment, right? No, that's not what he's saying at all. The point is, is that we, uh, we miss his heart, and all of these things, to do all of these things in our own souls bears incredible weight and takes away the weight of the other person. And that's what we're trying to honor here is the weight that the other person has. So let's talk about anger. Uh, actually, there are, so there are two realities that we're going to consider. We're going to talk about anger first, and then the second thing that we're going to talk about is labels. So you should know that there are ways to be righteously angry. And you should also know that for human beings to do it effectively is nearly impossible. (laughs) Right. So, um, like, there's no way. 
There is a way, but it requires the Holy Spirit uh, to recognize that God just, God's justice needs to be done in a certain situation or to long for God's justice to be done in a certain situation, right? But the problem is, is that our fallen hearts mix false motives into righteous, into anger that might by itself be righteousness, righteous anger. And because of that, when you bring these things together, it makes it anger that is still qualifying by these categories. So, um, so with that being a reality, it, it, it's very unusual for fallen human anger to be free from mixed emotions and mixed motives. So where does anger most often for us in our situation come from? And I want to give you three categories. Anger arises in me when you reject me, threaten me, or take something from me. Most often, anger arises when you reject me, threaten me, or take something from me. What is the consistent thing in all three of them? Me. In all three of them, the consistent thing is me. So let's talk about rejection. Rejection says, you know what? I need you to agree with me about my view of myself. And I know what your actions will look like if you agree with me about my view of myself. So this is what I need from you. If you violate that, then you're saying that my view of myself is a false view, and I don't particularly love that. So the, the sin connected to rejection is pride. When you experience rejection, you are looking for somebody to affirm you, to approve you, to say that you're something. And when they don't say that, you get awfully offended. Let's, uh, let's talk about threat. So uh, when, when somebody feels threatened, when anger arises because of a threat, what you're saying is that my sense of safety and security is disrupted because of you. My sense of safety and security is disrupted because of you. So the core of that idea is fear. If I look at a person and I reduce them to the reality that they are, they are a threat to my safety and security, then, then the core thing that I'm operating out of with them is fear. The third thing, take something. When somebody takes something from you, what you're saying is that there is something that belongs to me and I can no longer have it because you are here. So when you're driving on the road and the place in front of you belongs to you and somebody cuts you off, they've taken something that belongs to you and you curse them in your heart and with your mouth and uh, you discover that you don't value that person in that car as highly as you might have liked to think that you did. And the root of that is entitlement. So when I then uh, get angry at another person, it's rare that, uh, that I'm having this emotional response to the principle. So, so if it's more often true that I'm having the response to the person. So, so we can respond based on principle, right? Like it is objectively wrong that... Uh, X person would do X, Y, or Z thing. Like, we can talk objectively about that, but it's very rare that we get angry because of objective principles. It's more often that we get angry because of a violation that occurs to us. 
we feel like we are being violated. So what, this is why anger is problematic, because it places you and your perspective at the center of the whole universe and then evaluates everybody else based on how they relate to you, what they've done to you, how they've wronged you. So uh, it causes you to, in your heart, then reduce a person to this singular way that they've affected you. It causes you to make assumptions about their motives without actually talking to them. It causes you to see them only for, only for the offense that they have carried out on you as opposed to the reality that they are a whole person. They're more than just what they've done to you. So it causes you to miss the basic dignity that God has crowned them with. Okay, so that's, that's anger. That's why it's problematic. I would encourage you. So here's the amazing thing. The gospel frees us from these things, right? If, if I am saved by Jesus, if I'm given promises from Jesus, I know that what is ultimate about me, because he has died for my sins, because he has rose from the dead, I know that what is ultimate about me is absolutely secure, So that when someone comes along and and says that they're going to take something from me or says that they're going to threaten something about my safety, I don't have to be afraid of that thing because what is most true about me is already resolved in Jesus. Right? Like, I'm free to lay my pride down. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to make you think that I'm something that I'm not because Jesus has already said everything about me that is most valuable. Entitlement. I don't have to try to, to take somebody else's things. Right? Everything I have is like trash in comparison with getting Christ. So the gospel fights against all of these things. The gospel frees us to actually love our neighbor without having to think about how they might be damaging us or offending us. Okay, so now that was anger. Let's talk about labels. Oftentimes when we are angry, we will label the person according to the offense that they have executed on us. And what we'll do after that moment where we have labeled them is we will continue to employ that label on into the future. So, uh, so here's what the label does. When we put a label on somebody, it permits us to continue seeing them as the offense rather than as an entire person, a whole person made in the image of God. So, so let's talk about politics this morning and then we'll wrap things up. Um, you need to know before, before we start going down this road, it is my goal to talk to Christians, right? Because I'm going to say some things and you're gonna go, but what about them? They're doing the same things. And I'm like, that's great for them, but you are saved by Jesus and have the Holy Spirit inside of you, right? So it is my goal this morning to talk to Christians, as Christians, we have this calling, calling and equipping to honor all of life like God does, even the lives of those that we might consider to be our enemies. And I'm so glad Jesus cleared that up for us. So it's not wrong to challenge and question political ideologies, and I want you to hear me on that. It is absolutely not wrong to challenge and question political ideologies. 
But when you reduce a person in your mind, whether or not they've reduced themselves down to that thing, when you reduce them in your mind down to that ideology that you have an issue with, then this is where we start to create challenges, right? Because we know, they might not know it, but we know that they are a whole person made in the image of God. They are more than their particular ideology. Because, uh, so here's the, pol- the temperature of political discourse in our country. If someone espouses a different ideology than we do, we tend to see them as those who are rejecting us. Or we tend to see them as those who would threaten our safety and security. Or we tend to see them as those who are desiring to take something from us that belongs to us. And when we see those things, then what we do is we create labels for people and we reduce them to the ideology that we think is problematic. So these labels come out something like those liberal hacks and the things that they're doing, right? Or they come out something like those conservative extremists and them trying to enforce their morality on our society or those right-wing nut jobs and all of the things that they go on and on about or those left-wing cronies and all of the, the, the different purposes for different people that they're working for and trying to execute on us, right? And so what we do is behind that label, we carry all of our anger with all of our perspectives about them and, and with a couple of words, this is what we've done. We've taken a person, a whole person that God has crowned with dignity and honor, and we've reduced them to the thing that we find most offensive about them. And when we do this, Jesus says that we are committing the same dishonor against the image of God as one who murders. So we, as the people of God, We may want them to rise above it. That may be something that we desire. We, as the people of God, have the calling to rise above it. Like Jesus puts this on us. Jesus equips us with the Holy Spirit and actually enables us to do it. So so that doesn't mean, again, that we can't challenge ideologies. It doesn't mean that we can't engage in respectful discourse, but we don't reduce them to anything less, in our minds, anything less than the image of God. So church, our call this morning is to honor life like God does. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, honor their life enough to connect them with Jesus. So we've talked a lot about anger. We've talked a lot about the kind of the negative ways that we can dishonor. But do you know the most honorable thing that Christians can do for any other person made in the image of God if we actually love them and want to see their good and want to crown them with the same honor and dignity that God crowns them with is we can seek to see them reunited with their Father who is in heaven. 
right? We can extend to them the hope of the gospel, which is the only hope that any human being ever has when we have to stand face to face with God, that Jesus Christ stands for us in our place. He has taken the weight of our sin on himself that we might stand before God righteous and saved and holy. And that is the most amazing hope we have. Like, who are we to refuse to extend that to other people? Because every single one of them is made in his image, and we ought to have the same dignity for them that he does. So, so the most significant way that we can positively honor the image of God in somebody else is to seek to extend the hope of the gospel to them. Number two, if a label is permitting you to sin, stop using the label. Right, so if in using the label... It, it kind of riles up your emotions. Or if in using the label, it, it forces you to reduce the person down into this ideology and not see them as a whole person, then just stop using the label. Like, see them for more than what they are, even if they don't see themselves that way. Number three. The good news for us this morning is that Jesus was murdered for murderous people. Right? In our hearts. The anger that gets inside of there when we are simply offended or maybe offended in even bigger ways. The same thing is crouching at our door that was crouching at Cain's door. The same motives inside of our hearts. And Jesus allowed himself to be, become subject, first of all, to the will of his Father, but then second of all, to the hearts of murderous people who would put him on a cross and who would yell and shout, crucify him, when the week before that they were celebrating his entry into their city. And that these murderous people would, would see him executed. He would let himself go through that so that people who realize that we are broken in our hearts for the way that we uh, picture other people, for the way that we categorize other people, for our anger against other people so that we would not have to be liable to the hell of fire for those things but so that we might be called righteous and holy and blameless and spotless in the eyes of our Father because Jesus gave himself up for us. Church, this is the good news. And as we go through, we continue to go through these 10 commandments, they will continue to reveal to us ways that our heart is broken. And may it well up inside of each and every one of us gratefulness that Jesus has taken our punishment and Jesus has given us a new identity. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to, as... as your church in the middle of this community that you've placed us, that you would help us to see, and not just see, but to proclaim and uphold 
the incredible value of human life. Lord, may, may we not miss it. May, may we carry that dignity with us to each and every person we see. May we refuse the temptation and the pull by our society to reduce people into labels. May we refuse the temptation in our own hearts to, to categorize every single person by the ways that they have treated us or offended us. Lord, may we see every single person as a person that you've made in your image, as a person that you are desiring relationship with, as a person that you desire to save and draw to repentance, as a person that you love so much that you would extend your very son that they might have life if they would believe. Lord, help us to not miss these things, to not miss the dignity and honor and glory with which you have crowned human life. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with